Chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Well, if you can believe it, and I hope you do actually take me at my word here, but the last time I preached and taught through the Sermon on the Mount... I spent an entire month on the Beatitudes. Uh, And at that time, my plan was to go through the whole sermon over the course of the summer. So it was June, and I was planning to go to at least August and maybe September. I even thought myself, you know, pretty clever, and I came up with a catchy title for what I was calling a sermon series at the time. But then, as as, uh, Robert Burns once wrote, The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And so after three whole months, I had only made it through Matthew chapter 5. Now, with that introduction thrown out there, let me put you at ease and tell you that I'm not planning on doing that. That's not my plan today, and that's not my plan this time. uh, Because we do follow the calendar and the lectionary, we have the next three weeks, and we're going to go through all of Matthew 5. So what I took three months to do, we're going to do in three weeks. Uh, But... Uh, Today, instead, what I want to do is approach this text the way we have so far throughout the entire season of Epiphany, which is, let's focus on certain themes. And so if you'll remember, and we're reminded of this every year, the major theme of the season of Epiphany is the manifestation of Christ, or the revealing of Jesus as the Christ to the world. Now, we see this particularly on the day of Epiphany with the coming of the Magi, as he is revealed to be the Messiah to the Magi, but also as he is revealed to be the Christ by his baptism in the Jordan by John. But then also this year, over the last few weeks, we have leaned into a theme of identification, of our identification in Christ and with Christ. Starting with and stating that by his baptism, Jesus identified with us so that we can identify with him and also so that our identity could be found in him. And then now, starting in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does here is he begins to spell out for us what our new identity in him will actually begin to look like. 
And so as we come to this first verse, let's just again remind ourselves of what's going on here. Let's kind of set the context for Matthew. If you'll recall from last week in Matthew 4, we looked in verses 12 through 23 last week of Matthew chapter 4. And starting in verse 12, we see that Jesus moves to Capernaum. And as is his wont, Matthew shows us how in doing so, Jesus intentionally fulfilled certain prophecies about the promised Messiah. These particularly coming from Isaiah chapter 9. And then Jesus, as we continue reading that passage, he begins his ministry. He begins by proclaiming repentance by proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, excuse me. And while doing so, what he is doing, as we come to verse 18 of Matthew 4, he walks by the Sea of Galilee, and he calls the first four disciples. And he calls them and says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And by using that particular phrase, again, Matthew reminds us that Jesus is once more intentionally fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah. This one recorded in Jeremiah 16. And then Jesus, as we continue on, he continues to preach repentance, he continues to minister in Galilee, and he starts to heal sickness and disease. And so naturally, if you finish that passage right before the Sermon on the Mount begins, naturally crowds start to gather around him. Matthew even tells us in chapter 4, verse 25, he says, Great crowds, multitudes began to follow. And honestly, why wouldn't they, right? The lame are being healed. The sick are being cured. Those riddled with diseases are being made whole again. Of course, people are going to start to gather. And so it's in the midst of all of these crowds that are pressing in on him, Matthew then writes this in verse 1. He says, In seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And so like last week, what Matthew is starting to do here in chapter 5 is he's using geographical or topographical clues to draw our attention to not only a transition, but to certain details about who Jesus really is. And except this time, instead of, like last week, using a region around the Sea of Galilee, Matthew guides us up on top of a mountain. And in doing so, what Matthew is doing is he's wanting us to notice as his readers how going up a mountain to teach Jesus is claiming the very authority of God. And he does so in order to identify his disciples with himself and with the kingdom that he is coming to proclaim. Because you see, and if you notice this, if you you read through the Gospels on a regular basis, there is a common pattern in Jesus' ministry that each Gospel writer really tries to take note of. He'll do a work, right? He'll do some preaching, he'll do some teaching, he'll do healing, and then he'll retreat away. He'll retreat to a desolate place. He'll retreat for prayer for himself. He'll retreat. He'll call his disciples to follow him. He'll retreat for prayer, for rest, for fasting, or even for instruction. And so here in Matthew's gospel, almost immediately upon calling the disciples, he retreats with them up a mountain. And he does so for the purpose of instructing them, for teaching them what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven that he has called them to. And what it will look like to be identified with him and his ministry and the message that he is calling them to proclaim. And so think about how just very quickly how this is immediately applicable to the church. Because one of our purposes of gathering on Sunday morning is not just for fellowship and community, which we all like. I mean, community is even in our name, right? But we also gather for worship. We gather for instruction. We gather for being fed. We gather... Or preparation for ministry throughout the rest of the week. 
And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, what he is doing is presenting to us how the gospel is to be lived while the Holy Spirit continues to work to conform our identity more and more into the image of Christ. And throughout all of Scripture, what we see, we see a similar pattern of how God, what he does is he begins to do, as he begins to do a new work in his people, he calls them up a mountain. The mountaintop or around a mountain is a place where God regularly interacts with his people and a place where he regularly instructs his people. So just to give you some examples, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God calls Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, to the mountains of Moriah and to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, we've studied this passage a few times, and we know that obviously... Abraham is stopped by God before he actually kills Isaac. But what God does in this situation is he uses the opportunity of Abraham's faithfulness to God to reconfirm his covenant with Abraham. Later on in Exodus chapter 19, verse 2, the Hebrews, as they have now left Egypt, the Exodus has occurred. They camp around Mount Horeb, which is the mountain of God. And they do so while Moses goes up the mountain to receive law, the law and instruction. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah flees from Jezebel to that same mountain, to Mount Horeb, and he receives instruction to anoint Elisha as his successor in the role of prophet and to also anoint Jehu to be the next king of Israel. So God regularly makes use in Scripture of mountaintops to prepare his people for a new work that he is getting ready to do among them. And so by leading the disciples now up the mountain, the Lord Jesus is following the same pattern. He is preparing to do a new work among his people. Chromatius writes here, he says, Jesus went up the mountain so that he might give instruction in the heavenly commandments to his disciples. But also mountains in scripture are used as a place where God reveals himself to his people. Now, for our theme of epiphany, of the manifestation or revealing of Jesus as the Christ, this ought to start throwing off epiphany warning bells in our heads. Because in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, Moses meets with God on Mount Horeb in the burning bush. And he receives a commission to go to Pharaoh and to demand the release of his people, of the Hebrew slaves. In 1 Kings 19, after Elijah has fled from Jezebel, he hears God. And receives instruction from a still, small voice. And Jesus is intentionally following that same pattern. Nothing about God has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And how he relates to his people and prepares them for a new work. And so by leading the disciples up the mountain, Jesus is revealing himself to be the Christ. Who is about to instruct his people on how to be effective members of the kingdom that he has come to proclaim. And Jerome writes here, he says, The Lord went up the mountain so that he might bring us with him to the higher things. And so by simply leading the disciples up the mountain for instruction, Jesus begins the work of transforming them into his image, of identifying them with him and his ministry. And the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Matthew here, is inviting us up the same mountain as well so that we too can be transformed more into the image of Christ. And this work begins with the Beatitudes. And so to simply put it, the Beatitudes could be considered 
character traits of a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the past, personally, as I've studied these for either personal growth or for teaching and instruction or preaching, I've tried to do some kind of helpful distinguishing of these things, of these beatitudes. So that way, hopefully, they're more helpful for me to grasp, but also more helpful for those whom I'm teaching or preaching to to, to grasp. And a lot of studies have been done on, on the Beatitudes since the moment Christ uttered them. And so, for example, just to give you some that, that I have personally come up with, the Beatitudes are, and this might be helpful for some in the room, it might not for others, and that's fine. But the Beatitudes are interestingly laid out in the literary format known as a chiasm, which I find this quite fascinating. So for those that don't know that word, that's fine. A chiasm is simply a literary device used by authors, and especially the biblical authors, for the purpose of drawing our attention as readers to a, to a structure in the text that's, that mirrors each other. And so in the case of the Beatitudes, they both begin with and end in verses 3 and 10 with inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. And then as you make your way on the structure, they peak in verses 6 and 7 with righteousness and mercy. Another interesting fact about the Beatitudes is that they really kind of build upon one another. So while they are written in a chiasm, they build on one another. Each character trait leads into and towards the next character trait. So the first three describe our knowledge of our spiritual need for God. And the fourth states God's promise to meet our needs. Where the final three describe the result of our being satisfied in the righteousness of God. But ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and the Beatitudes in particular, should be considered to be a summary of the Christian faith. James Boyce even refers to the Beatitudes as the markers of a new humanity. He says it's because through the Beatitudes, Jesus describes for us our new identity that is found only in him. And they will be based upon the kingdom law that he is about to lay out as the rest of the sermon unfolds. So again, just as a humorous anecdote, I spent the better part of a month on the Beatitudes the last time I tried to preach through this. And if there really ever was a passage of Scripture that was in need of a long, slow look, although all of Scripture could obviously fall under that umbrella, but if there ever was one that needed a longer look, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. But for today, now that we have followed Christ and the disciples up the mountain, I mean... We're not only sitting in the sanctuary here at Christ Community, but we literally had to drive up a hill to get in here. So, you know, we, could, we have our little symbolic mountain here at Christ Community Church, right? So we're up the hill. We're in the mountain. We're, we're in the sanctuary. Now that we follow Jesus and the, and the disciples up the mountain for instruction, let's just take a few moments and note how these character traits of the Beatitudes begin the work of transforming us more into the image of the Lord Jesus. And it starts here as you read in verse 3. By recognizing our poverty of spirit. So again, just beginning at the beginning again, he says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is how we enter the kingdom of heaven. Because part of the act of repentance is recognizing our depraved and impoverished spiritual condition. The poor in spirit are those whose hearts have been regenerated by the work of God and who have been born from above. 
The poor in spirit are those who know that they cannot rely on themselves or their merits to obtain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And so when we approach God through repentance and faith in Christ, we do so out of the poverty of our spirits. And we carry that poverty to a merciful God who responds with grace and who gives us the kingdom of heaven as an inheritance. The Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 15, he says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But the Beatitudes, interestingly, do not only describe us, they also describe Christ. As Matthew writes his gospel, he, he is consistently painting with broad brushstrokes of the Beatitudes as he paints the portrait of Christ for us in his gospel. And so throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew frequently explores the way that Jesus fulfills, but also how we participate in a life that is shaped by the qualities of the Beatitudes that Jesus models. And in the Beatitudes, what Christ does is he blesses his disciples whose character conforms to his own. And so this whole point of the theme of identifying in Christ reminds us that our whole selves have been hidden with Christ in God. And we are therefore to pattern our whole selves after the one whom we follow. Because what Jesus is calling us to here in the Beatitudes is a life that mirrors his own. And so notice how Jesus, in the rest of these Beatitudes, starting in verse 4, exemplifies the character traits that we are to imitate and to image. In verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn. Christ mourned when he saw that the people were like a sheep without a shepherd. Matthew would later write, I believe in chapter 9, he says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus blesses those who mourn not only over the poverty of their own spiritual condition, but who, like himself, mourns over the poverty of the spiritual condition of mankind. And in verse 5, he goes on, he says, Blessed are the meek, because he himself was meek and he was humble. The meek are blessed because they lay their burdens on Christ and are then identified in Christ. He writes, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your weary souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In verse 6, he goes on and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because he pursued all righteousness. We discussed this on, on the baptism of the Lord a few weeks ago, but he reminds John before his baptism at the end of Matthew 3, let this be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, because he is merciful. When he saw people in need, he sympathized with them and he healed them. In Matthew chapter 20, Matthew records, he says, And as Jesus passed on, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. In verse 8, he goes on and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart because he himself was pure. And he exhorts us to purity by finding our purity in him. In Matthew 23, he proclaims the woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. This came up in Sunday school today briefly. But he says this, he says, Woe to you, for you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside so that the outside may be clean. For you were like whitewashed tombs, which outward appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead bones and uncleanness. Our purity is to be found in Christ, who cleans the inside. In verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers because he offered peace, and he is our peace. In John 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Therefore, let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. And then finally, in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because he was righteous and fulfilled all righteousness. And he was persecuted constantly for his righteousness, even to the point of death on a cross. And then we come to verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12 at the end, and we see that being blessed for the persecution for righteousness' sake. In doing so, Jesus explains to us how the Beatitudes start to shape us into his image by telling us in verses 11 and 12 of what being identified in him looks like. He says this. He goes through the entire Beatitudes, and then he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He tells us directly that our identification with him and in him will inevitably lead to persecution and rejection because the world rejects him. He tells us in John 15, verses 18 to 21, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And so if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep your word. But these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Over in chapter 16 of John, he goes on and he continues and he concludes here. He says, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so as we are identified more and more in Christ and with Christ, as our character becomes more like Jesus's as he lays out for us here in the Beatitudes, as our response to the world becomes more like the response of Christ, as our lives are shaped and molded after the Beatitudes that he proclaims and models for us, persecution and rejection are to be expected by those who identify with Christ because it is the constant and consistent pattern from a world that rejects Christ and rejects truth and rejects the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells us here that our rejection, in verse 11, our rejection 
is on his account, or our rejection from the world is because of him. Meaning that believers in Christ are rejected and they suffer because they belong to Christ and they are identified with Christ. And being persecuted and reviled because of Christ is the key to enduring our suffering. Because here is the weird thing that the world doesn't get about believers in Christ. Is that a disciple who is rejected and persecuted on account of being identified with Christ is a joyful disciple. Because their identity has been fully hidden in the person of the Lord Jesus. And as Jesus tells us in verse 12, he says, We are to rejoice and we are to be glad. Because our reward for being persecuted and rejected on account of him is great. It's massive. It's in the Greek, the word is also much. It's a lot. And it's a lot. It's great, not because we have merited it as a reward, but rather our reward is massive. It is great because the reward itself is Christ and it is the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. So there is blessing. There is happiness to be found when we are reviled and persecuted and have falsehoods uttered about us on the account of the name of Christ. We see this in the example of the apostles themselves. In Acts chapter 5, we read this. And when they, the Sanhedrin, had called the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. But then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of the Lord Jesus. James then tells us in James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy when you endure various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It produces steadfastness. So when we mirror the character of Christ, when we are identified in Christ, we participate in Christ. And by doing so, through repentance and through faith and belief, And through the long road of sanctification, we are transformed into the image of Christ. And it's God's design, and it is is his good pleasure that we should be identified with and in Jesus. Because there is no higher privilege for us than to be identified with the Son of God. And so as we prepare to confess our faith in the ancient creed, and as we prepare to come to the table... Let us make great thanks together for what Christ has done for us. But let us also be identified in Christ together. As we sit at his feet on the mountaintop and learn what it means to be his disciples. Amen.